Welcome to the podcast series of the Notre Dame Program of Constitutional Studies. The Program of Constitutional Studies here at Notre Dame fosters research and teaching on the philosophical principles of constitutional government and the American constitutional tradition. Enjoy today's podcast. So I want to just briefly talk about why I got interested in this project and why this is important. Uh, I think the best motivation is ex expressed in a citation uh, from an interview that I did with ICJ judge um, Al-Khasavnech in Jordan. And he told me, so contrary to the perceptions, Arabs have been going to court in various forms. He means the International Court of Justice. And why is this uh, citation a, a good reason why I wrote the book? Well, contrary to perception, the perception in the scholarship on international law and also perception in, among a lot of practitioners of international law is that Muslim majority states, I call them Islamic law states, dislike international law because Islamic legal tradition is on one side and then international law is on the complete other end of spectrum. So why would any Islamic law state show up in the International Court of Justice? After all, they dislike international law, and, and the story goes um, like that. Um, but in reality, Islamic law states have actually enjoyed elements of international law. So it seemed to me that there is something about it. And I wanted to know, are there any similarities between international law and the Islamic legal tradition? Why is it that Arabs are going to the court, which means supporting international law? Another interview that I did um, was in England with an anonymous state advocate, uh, a really tremendously important scholar of international law that was animate about being anonymous. And he told me, Islamic law is Islamic law, period. International law is international law. Again, expressing this dichotomy between the two. And it just bothered me. And this is why I have the book. So what do I believe in? Uh, well, <coughs> another thing I want to mention is that in the scholarship, and even on the news when we watch them, people seem to perceive Islamic law states as a monolith. Islamic law this, Islamic law states this, Muslim uh, religion or law this. And to me, well, that's just wrong. There is not one Islamic law, but there is this huge Islamic legal tradition that encompasses a great diversity. So I'm asking in the book, what are the similarities between Islamic legal tradition and international law? And why is it that some Islamic law states end up at the International Court of Justice? So that means support international law. I have very few slides, and I wanted to throw a lot of pictures because I don't want to bore you with text. The text is in the book. So what I did in my research, I created this category of Islamic law states. And the category captures the diversity. It is 30 states, so 30 countries. Um, I analyze their legal systems, constitutions, and sub-constitutional legal systems <laughs> since Second World War till right now. You see the map there, incredible span of countries. So it's rational um, to think that those states are not identical. 
we cannot say that all of those states are going to have identical relationship to international law. But they're different. So what I look in my book is the inherent diversity in the Islamic legal tradition, how much secular law and how much Islamic legal tradition is included in their governance, in the constitutions and in the institutions. So this was immense work. It meant that I had to analyze 172 constitutions and amendments over time and cross-sectionally, looking for the nexus between Islamic law and secular institutions. What did I look for? I look for things like, can women in a particular Islamic law state uh, be judges? How many times is Sharia mentioned in the Constitution? In what form is it mentioned? Do judges in a particular country have to take holy oath to God? Because those institutions would indicate more or less commitment to the Islamic legal tradition. I also coded some things like, are there secular courts in an Islamic law state? Um, and a variety of other things that uh, show me the nexus between Islamic law and secular law. I think what captures the beautiful diversity of the Islamic legal tradition are those pictures. I have taken many of those pictures personally because, as I mentioned, this project required immense traveling to many of those states because my number one goal was to write about a group of states that I actually been to many of. I cannot write about Islamic legal tradition before I see how it lives. I cannot understand how those states understand international law up until I am in those states up until I, I talk to international judges, scholars of uh, the Islamic legal tradition and international law. So this is a span of beautiful countries that according to my hunch and according to the book, have a various view of international law. All right, what are the main findings of the book? Number one, Islamic law is really unique. It's a wide ranging legal tradition that's unlike other domestic legal traditions, so unlike the European law, unlike the civil legal tradition, unlike the common legal tradition, one of the features of Islamic law that makes it so unique is the amazing diversity, amazing diversity. So number one finding of the book is, look, we cannot make general statements about Islamic law states, that they will dislike international law, or they would like it because <laughs> there is no one thing as one Islamic law, but many Islamic laws that change over time and from state to state, so cross-sectionally. But also, um, my book shows that there are many similarities between international law and the Islamic legal traditions. <laughs> and what it means is that as a group, is there, there is a large expectation um, hopeful expectation that among the many substantive areas of international law, we can find similarities between international law and Islamic law <laughs> that will encourage Islamic law states to use what international law has to offer. I also describe in the book um, something in which Islamic law, Islamic legal tradition is unique. It is the logic of dispute resolution. 
how, uh, how disputes are to be settled according to Islam is very unique. Um, it is commitment to sulh, uh, sulh meaning um, mediation, conciliation, non-confrontational way of solving disputes. And in my book, what I notice is that states among this, this wide group, category of Islamic law states, states that incorporate quite a few elements of traditional Islamic law are drawn to methods that are true or considered optimal for the Islamic legal tradition, and that would be mediation and conciliation. And that's a beautiful finding. It shows that mechanisms offered by international law, like mediation and conciliation, are actually attractive to Islamic law states. That's super, in my opinion. Um, what I also find is, is that Islamic law states that have large elements of secular law, they are drawn to international courts. And that's natural, right? You embrace the elements of secularism in law. You are more open to what international law has to offer. Um, and that would be international court. <laughs> so the book focuses on the greatest court, according to me, International Court of Justice. It focuses on peaceful resolution of territorial disputes. We know that territory disputes over territory are tremendously uh, dangerous. And I believe that it's important to understand preferences of Islamic law states in the context of territorial disputes. And then I look at Islamic schools of jurisprudence and regions. Now, I want to briefly uh, tell you via pictures what that book entailed. I already mentioned that I traveled a tremendous amount um, over the last seven, eight years. Uh, doing research on this topic as a female scholar required a little more work, perhaps. What that means is that in many of my interviews across uh, mainly the Middle East, I uh, invited either my father to go with me or my husband with me. That was just a whole operation. Um, what that meant is that I was in many of those countries more acceptant. They loved my father or my husband. Um, the whole thing uh, went very well. It also meant that I had to establish personal connections to Muslim scholars by myself, um, which required quite a bit of work, quite a bit of uh, prior connections. But it also meant that I got to interview ministers of justice, um, judges of the International Court of Justice, scholars of Islamic law in numerous countries like Kuwait, Algeria, Oman, Bahrain. Um, I got to speak with some tremendous uh, people that got such deep knowledge of international law. Um, what that also meant is that I was away a lot of time from my home. My average was three months per year. I was gone doing research. And uh, I have two children. My husband, who is here, has kept them, um, which I want to say thank you for that. Yay. But I, I hope that you see through my presentation that this is, this is my love. I am very devoted to this topic. I think that it's a wonderful top, topic to talk about. 
I mean, turn on the news. What do we hear about? The Islamic legal tradition completely misunderstood. Uh, one picture that I want to draw your attention to is me sitting on this weird stuff. It is actually, over Christmas, I gave my family a choice. I said, I don't want to go to Florida. The two countries that I want to visit is either Qatar or Bahrain. Why? Because those countries ended up at the International Court of Justice and successfully resolved their dispute um, in 2001 in the International Court of Justice. This is me sitting on the Hover Islands, um, the picture of Hover Islands, which was the topic of the dispute. This is how far um, I am committed to this topic. And I, again, want to say thank you to my family, my parents, who have very much been supportive of me um, doing uh, those things. The picture in the middle, the upper one, is my daughter, Scarlett, who is 13 years old, in a mosque. Um, because I decided that it's a wonderful thing to observe the workings of the mosque at the prayer. <laughs> so I can understand how the Islamic legal tradition lives nowadays. And then how I can perceive how Islam views international law. And again, thank you very much for coming. Now I want to turn the floor to a wonderful professor and a mentor of mine, Beth Simmons. No, I messed up. You did. Okay, uh, but she's. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> but I have the right to mess up. It's my book lounge. <laughs> Thank you, Amelia. Amelia is so passionate about the topic that she left over uh, my introduction of her, <laughs> my introduction of the discussants, <laughs> my welcome to all of you. Welcome, everybody. So just by way of, of introduction, as you figured out by now, <laughs> we are here to celebrate and discuss Amelia's new book, uh, Islamic Law and International Law. There are copies available on my left if you wish to buy a copy. And I had planned to say that after Amelia has introduced some of the ideas in the book, which she has already now, uh, we're going to have two discussions. The first on my right is Mahan Mirza, who is teaching professor and executive director of the Ansari Institute for Global Engagement with Religion here in the Keogh School. And then our second discussant and honored guest, a renowned scholar Beth Simmons, who is the Andrea Mitchell University Professor of Law political science and business ethics, as if these are all somehow compatible, <laughs> at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, I'm Laurie Nathan. I'm director of the mediation program at the Kroc Institute. We are hosting this event because of our interest in Amelia's book, but also our interest in this kind of book, this type of book. The mediation program works closely with the United Nations on mediation in high-intensity conflict. And the UN is really the premier global mediator, the mediator of, of last resort. In these conflicts, the conflict parties typically have strong attachments to ethnic, religious, cultural identities in addition to their political and ideological identities. But the United Nations approach to mediation purports unreflectively and perhaps even unconsciously to be culture universal to be culture neutral or culture free. And this is a myth, of course. The UN's approach to mediation derives from a Western approach to trade negotiations with a very strong legalistic orientation. 
And the UN therefore ignores the religious and the cultural specificities of the protagonists in the conflicts in which it's mediating. And as a result, UN mediation is often suboptimal because it's ignoring the dispute res resolution preferences and styles and modalities and norms and rules of the protagonists. We value Amelia's book because it challenges the ignorance and the hubris of this approach and appreciates, values the complexities within and between different ways of understanding dispute resolution. So thank you to Amelia. Thank you also to the co-sponsors of this event, uh, Ansari Institute, the ND International Security Center, and the Constitutional Studies Program. Thank you all uh, very much to our uh, assistants, our colleagues who have helped prepare the lunch and get you all here. And with that, uh, pleasure to hand you over to Mahan. Okay. Well, thank you, Laurie, for uh, this introduction. And thank you to Amelia for writing the book. Um, it's a real privilege to be here with you to celebrate the launch. At its most basic level, says Professor Powell, this book stresses the importance of incorporating non-Western, in the context of this book, Islamic modes of legal thinking into international resolution venues. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds to me a little bit like creeping Sharia. <laughs> and that too at the global level. Count me in. <laughs> but in all seriousness, one could engage this book from a number of angles. The relationship between domestic legal systems and international law, data indicators for the degree of Islamicness of different Islamic countries, the tendency of the Islamic judicial tradition toward less formal, non-binding approaches to conflict resolution, that the law is authoritative such that a state's decisions on the international scene cannot always be simply explained by pragmatism or power dynamics, the multi-method scholarly approach involving a blend of empirical data, in-depth interviews, hypothesis testing, and qualitative analysis. Now, while each of these points is interesting, and any one of them could serve as the fulcrum of analysis, I think that the creeping Sharia proposition is the most compelling entry point. It allows us to frame and contextualize most, if not all, of the other scholarly interventions of the work under discussion. The intent of this book, says Professor Powell, is a constructive one. It contains clear policy advice, to quote at length. Creating constructive ways of making the Islamic milieu more comfortable with modern international law can prove beneficial to global peace. A subgroup of the ILS category, Islamic law states category, is relatively unlikely to use international courts. Perhaps if the courts are open to Islamic law in their jurisprudence, the gap between domestic law and international law can be bridged more effectively. This is perhaps the most important policy advice that stems from this research." End quote. So the advocacy to build bridges between two different legal systems is premised on what I think are two key observations. One, 
that international law is not sufficiently pluralistic. It is an expression of the legal culture of Western societies, historically rooted in Christianity, even though it has now transcended its religious origins. Two, there exists sufficient similarity between the Islamic legal tradition and international law to allow the two to co-evolve. And she says, this co-evolution can foster international justice and restore public trust in the positive nature of international law and Islamic law, trust in both. The anthropologist Kwame Anthony Apaya argues this very same point in relation to the traditional religions of West Africa. In his chapter on old gods, new worlds, he argues that the question of what it means to be modern is one that Africans and Westerners may ask together. He further argues that unless all, all of us understand each other and understand each other as reasonable, we shall not treat each other with the proper respect. It seems to me that Professor Powell's work, if anything, aims to further the noble aim of intercultural literacy, understanding, and cooperation. The first of the two premises above, that international law is not sufficiently pluralistic, relies on extensive qualitative and quantitative evidence, examining 160 contentious cases and advisory opinions in the International Court of Justice from 1945 to 2012, for example, Professor Powell notes that only one single case made any reference to Islamic law. Single case. She observes that not only judges, but also entire community, the entire community of litigators and states, advocates who practice at The Hague are by and large trained in the West. And then she quotes an Islamic court uh, uh, an International Court of Justice judge from one of her interviews, Aoun Shaukat al-Khaswane, who laments that the court is culturally, quote, distant for people in the Islamic world. There is no doubt that international law now seems to reflect more Western values and Western interests. This is a significant assertion. As I write this book, says Professor Powell, the United States and Western Europe are going through a spell of nationalistic movements, movements that portray is Muslims, Islam, and Sharia as the other. The reality is that most people do not understand Islam. And this brings us to the second premise, where she says, the Islamic legal tradition is not ab initio across the board in fundamental contradiction with international law. They're not in fundamental contradiction. This proposition is argued with care throughout the book, keeping in mind the historical and philosophical multiformity of Islamic thought and societies, without relinquishing, through an empirical study of 30 Islamic law states, the quest to discover common patterns of behavior among them on the international scene. Both systems, according to Powell, accept the rule of law, value justice, and seek to resolve disputes in a peaceful manner. Generally speaking, Sharia-based solutions to conflict <clears throat> tend toward non-binding third-party mediation or conciliation efforts, while the prevailing international system 
prefers binding arbitration or adjudication through international courts. These divergent preferences, however, are just that, preferences. Each system is able to accommodate the preferences of the other, if indeed there were better literacy or political will, while remaining fully faithful to its own principles, out of deference to custom or a commitment to pluralism. One of the maxims in Islamic law is al-ada muhakkama, which is custom has arbitrating authority or adjudicating authority. Islamic law has always been hybrid, notes Professor Powell, existing side by side with civil, common, and customary law. The international legal system, likewise, enshrines impartiality. And she quotes Article 9 of its statute, which declares that judges are to be elected to represent the main forms of civilization and of the principal legal systems of the world. And so there's a subtext here that if you dismiss Sharia, you're actually saying that the societies that follow it are uncivilized. Mutual accommodation is possible, argues the book. It not only is possible, it is imperative. If we are to live together as a global and multicultural civilization, in peace. Take the example of 9-11. In the, so I'm applying what she does in the book and offering an example that's not in the book. In the aftermath of that, of that tragedy, could we have followed a different path than the one we embarked on with the so-called war on terror? While hindsight is 2020, we are in 2020 so we can have a good bit of it. <laughs> It is worth considering this counterfactual in light of the book under discussion. About two weeks after the attacks, while the US was mobilizing against Afghanistan, the New York Times reported. Some of you might remember this. The Reverend Jesse Jackson said today that he may try to meet with Afghanistan's Taliban rulers in an effort to persuade them to hand over Osama bin Laden and his Al-Qaeda terrorist associates. Mr. Jackson said he received a telephone call on Wednesday from Muhammad Shaheen. And later Shaheen said Jackson called him, but that wasn't as important. A spokesman for the Taliban embassy in Pakistan who suggested that he, led, that he lead a delegation of, to Afghanistan to mediate between the nation's rulers and the United States. We would like to see the situation resolved in a way that preserves the dignity and integrity of all sides, Mr. Jackson said. War and bloodshed are easy, but peace is difficult. So a week or so prior to engaging with Reverend Jackson, the Taliban had requested evidence of bin Laden's involvement in the attacks with offers to have bin Laden tried under the Sharia law, whether in Afghanistan or in a third neutral venue, offers that were categorically rebuffed. Maybe all of us sitting here today in this august center of academic excellence on recalling these offers by the Taliban and subsequent history will find them to be as ridiculous as they appeared to those in power back then. But think about it. I ask us to think about this. Why? 
Why do we find this offer ridiculous and unworkable? A non-starter. Look where we are today because of the consequences. In November 2018, Brown University's Costs of War project estimated the number of lives lost in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Pakistan from the U.S. war since 9-11 at least 480,000. More than 244,000 civilians. Could there have been some kind of accommodation reached to avoid compounding the one tragedy with another seemingly endless one, many times over? And perhaps this is not a fair question. 9-11 was an extreme situation. The veneer of respectability that law gives to power in the international arena simply may not apply at such times when only blood can requite for blood. Nonetheless, one day, if we answer the call of this book, we may see as possible that to which we have erstwhile been blind. Such is the promise of this book. It beckons us to make a better, more just, and more peaceful world, despite our many differences. I'm going to draw to the conclusion of my remarks. Professor Powell's thesis categorically rejects the clash of civilizations. Her work is in international law and Islamic law may be seen as a counterpart to arguments offered by other scholars, like Muhammad Fadl or Andrew March, on the possibility of finding an overlapping consensus between traditional Islam and notions of liberal citizenship with minimalist conceptions of each. Her work may also be seen in line with empirical work on Islamic societies done by scholars in security studies, like Robert Pape on suicide bombing, sociologists like Charles Kurtzman, The Missing Martyrs, or in political science like Stephen Fish, Are Muslims Distinctive? A Look at the Evidence. Or our very own Daniel Philpot, Religious Freedom in Islam. While in good academic company when it comes to policy, we can also be confident that she won't find herself in what Professor Michael Desch calls the cult of the irrelevant. The irrelevant, according to him, increasingly equate rigor with the use of particular techniques, mathematics, universal mo models, and ignore, ignore broader criteria of relevance. Professor Powell has not ignored broader criteria, criteria of relevance. Rather, she has conditioned her quantitative study by the broader criteria itself, very much in line with scholars like Charles Merriam, and I'm drawing on Professor Desch's book, one of the founders of the modern discipline of political science who saw, according to historian Barry Carl, science as the essential precondition of a useful activism. No matter our age of fake news, alternative facts, post-truth, and academic irrelevance. I'm an optimist. One never knows when good scholarship will be dusted off the shelf by someone in the right place at the right time. That is a day we all pray for, a day the world will be all the more grateful for scholars like Emilia Justina Powell. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mahan.
Mahan's input highlights a very powerful message of the book, which is that peaceful resolution of disputes is not only about resolution, it's also about prevention. It's about the prevention of violent resolution of disputes if peaceful Pacific forms of dispute resolution have legitimacy and are effective. With that, Beth. Thank you very much. Well, um, so you will not be surprised to hear me say some very different takes on this book, actually, um, where uh, we you know, heard messages of, I think, very hopeful commonality. I think that the book has strong themes of variation in it. Uh, and I think one of the central findings of the book is actually some of the strong differences within Islam. And I think that's what is one of the things that I actually found to be the most interesting. And the suggestion that certain manifestations of, of, of Islam actually um, embrace international law much less comfortably than other sorts of systems. That is, systems that balance the Western and the Islamic internally. So I'm going to make a, a few comments that talk a little bit more about variation in complement to what we just heard about aspects of commonality. Um, the other thing I guess I want to say uh, right off the bat is that um, we, not are not, we are not only in a time in which there is a resurgence of nationalism that poses itself as often contra to other cultures and contra especially to Islam. We're actually in a period right now when I think there is substantial backlash against international courts as well. So it is not just Islam somehow that has some skepticism of international law and international institutions. I think you can broadly find this throughout the Western world as well. And I think the United States has provided ample evidence of that. Um, the exit and the questioning of international institutions right now, I think, um, suggests to us uh, that these institutions have a broad legitimacy job to do, uh, not one just to reach out to the Islamic world, which is a mighty challenge, uh, let me say, but I think uh, more broadly um, are suffering in some ways questions about their broader relevance and legitimacy, legitimacy more generally. So I may have a few things to say about that as well. But first of all, let me say um, congratulations so much on this book. It really is a tremendous uh, um, scholarly achievement to have um, put together such a wonderful uh, book, which in so many ways has kind of this varying texture to it. You know, it's got the quantitative, um, sort of tough-minded quantitative analysis where we can put assigned probabilities and we can put three stars and we can be you know, relatively sure uh, about relationships. Uh, and on the other hand, it's so highly contextualized in ways that make all of these findings really come to life and have a very real uh, presence, I think, uh, in the uh, broader context of the many, many people that Amelia has interviewed and the, the amount of, of work it takes to do this book. I'm, I'm amazed it only took you, what did you say, six years. Uh, you know, so, um, so I, I, uh, I just really want to congratulate you on that. I think it's going to be impactful for its, its um, scholarly thoroughness, I think, is what I want to say. Um, I imagine there's some students of Amelia's in this room, I'm guessing. Is there? Good. Because I want to congratulate you, too, actually. I think professors get a lot of inspiration from their students. Mm -hmm. And I think we get feedback in a useful way from our students. And I think we get research assistance from our students. We get ideas from our students. Uh, and, um, and you are providing the kind of um, context, as are her colleagues, where this kind of a piece of work can be done and growth can be had. And I'm sure that the colleagues here 
uh, deserve their share of congratulations for support, in addition, of course, to your family, which I completely understand uh, that point as well. Um, so uh, it's a, it, it, there is, of course, um, a, a, a lot of praise to be had for the people in this room, it seems to me. So I've taught international law for 30 years. I know it, it might not look like it. I've taught it for 30 years, but I've taught international law for 30 years. And I've always struggled with this problem about how to think about other perspectives that are non-Western. Uh, you know, you kind of come to the end of the course and this feeling of guilt kind of creeps in that I haven't mentioned, other legal traditions, and I can't find, part of the problem is I can't find anything good to assign. So usually what I do is I turn to guest speakers. So I get someone who knows something about comparative law, for example, comparative Islamic law, some specialists in the international um, Islamic legal systems. And there, you know, it's a terrific experience. You take a deep dive into Islamic law. Uh, you know, you learn all about, for example, the role of Quran, the role of Sunnah, the role of uh, fiqh and interpretations of sources and, and the nuance. The problem was, after getting that deep dive into Islamic law, I couldn't see. I couldn't see the obvious ways in which those ideas linked with the international in very clear and obvious ways. So I tried something different the next time I taught the course. I asked an Egyptian diplomat to come to the class and tell us about how international, you know, how international informs as an informed by Islamic law. And from that source, I heard something completely different. I heard that by his reckoning, there was no such thing as distinctive Islamic approach to international law, uh, that Egypt saw the international legal system in just about the same way as Western countries did. Of course, this was a diplomat, outward-facing diplomat speaking to a Western audience. How did I get these two complete, and I'm still not satisfied that I've ever <laughs> sort of taught my students anything useful about the relation uh, between uh, international law and uh, Islamic law. Um, but I think that's what's so terrific about this book. I think the book actually sheds light on that divide. In some sense, uh, the kind of sort of Western-leaning, um, non-religious institutions that uh, have been uh, intermingled and, and work in some sense together with uh, Islamic, both Islamic culture as well as the Islamic legal system. And it's really that balance that I think that this book so clearly kind of brings out that is so useful to me. And, and, and that is, I think, what international legal scholars are really going to gain. That's what I learned from this book, uh, is the ways in which Islamic law informs and comparative Islamic law uh, informs um, the international. So I learned both about the similarities and the differences between Islamic law and Western law, and that some of the most substantial differences actually are within the Islamic states themselves. It's, again, it's this kind of variety that I found to be the most captivating part of this book. So the thesis of the book is that, uh, 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 is that Islamic law impacts the ways in which states interact with the international legal system and international institutions with a focus on the peaceful resolution of disputes. And it does so in very subtle ways. And I love the way that the book goes through this with tremendous subtly, subtlety, uh, that uh, there's, there's nothing homogenous uh, about Islamic law states. And it is this variance that has to do not only with, with Islamic law itself, but the ways in which it combines and, and mingles uh, with Western forms or non-religious. I don't know whether we should be calling it Western or non-religious. I kind of, um, um, 
but, but, but both of those terms are kind of used in the book. And I guess I'm more comfortable maybe with non-religious forms of law. Maybe that is, um, so not to give it such a Western, uh, Western anti-Western sort of a, 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 a label to it. But these variations matter. These variations within Islamic states matter quite a bit. Uh, it, it matters for their behavioral engagement with international legal institutions, and especially dispute settlement mass, uh, institutions. So why is that? Why? And it seems to me there's a really interesting argument being developed in this paper. And that is that this diversity actually informs a rational calculation about what it means to interact with international legal institutions. So the argument is essentially that the use of less familiar and less preferred institutions create uncertainty uh, for, uh, as, as to the kind of how these processes are going to work out and what the outcomes are going to be. And this is worsened by some aspects of international law itself. The fact that it's decentralized, for example. The fact that there is no precedent in international law that you can count on in a serious way. Uh, and so, so, the, so when, when those that come from a different legal tradition encounter the international, they are encountering it with a great deal of uncertainty. Uh, and, and that is part of this kind of rational calculation uh, of uh, outcomes, which are going to be hard to control, especially with adjudication, because you can't control the rules of adjudication, and it produces a binding outcome. So these are, these are reasons why this kind of hesitation and this uncertainty is so very prevalent uh, in systems. The further sort of they, they, uh, um, they uh, the further distance, I don't know, uh, the, the more, the, the less familiar, let's say, they are with Western forms of, of uh, legal dispute settlement, okay? So that's, that's what I find to be um, such an interesting observations. These institutions, as was mentioned, rarely take Islamic law or values into account, and that's what's creating the uncertainty, essentially. So the perception of, um, of some leaders when they try to decide and choose a strategy for dispute settlement is that they're going to be disadvantaged in these institutions in ways that cannot be overcome just by hiring Western lawyers, by the way. Uh, you know, so it's not just a matter of get some fancy law firm to come in. And, uh, and to sort of pursue the case, right? And there are rational reasons for this. On the other hand, there's an argument that's threading its way through the book as well, that, that there's something that we would not consider necessarily to be a rational argument. It's based on values and legitimacy. And I think that, uh, sort of just to quote one part of the book, the fact remains that international law states simply prefer to settle their disputes in a non-confrontational manner, owing to intrinsic cultural norms of disputes, of dispute resolution. So, so there's a there's a cultural preference here, in addition to an uncertainty uh, that is sort of creating this hesitation to use uh, international forms of dis international law forms of dispute settlement. So, um, so uh, it's not the case, of course, that international law states reject international law, but there are some inherent tensions. Um, so, I mean, I agree that there's a lot of overlap, and probably the tensions have been highlighted far too much compared to the overlap, but there are tensions. Uh, they're rooted, I think, in the very source of law itself. Uh, and that is the idea that, to quote from the book, from Amelia's book on page 41, all power in the domestic and international realms comes from God. He is the legal, ethical, and moral basis for all laws. That's the different starting point 
than for secular law. Okay? There's going to be some inherent tension that is, I don't know how you square that circle. Uh, I think we can be respectful for sure, uh, but it seems to me that this is a point of tension and the more serious that claim is taken, uh, the more suspect uh, a, a, a leader coming from uh, Islamic law state is going to feel joining, a, joining in in dispute settlement in a secular institution. So how does she build out the argument? First of all, we have to uh, be able to identify um, this category known as an Islamic law state. Uh, so an Islamic law state is a state with an identifiable substantial segment of its legal system that is charged with obligatory implementation of Islamic law and where Muslims constitute at least 50% of the population. So this is a spectrum, okay? The spectrum go, ranges from Saudi Arabia on the one hand, where it is almost completely and inherently uh, a, 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 a Islamic law state, um, at one extreme to Indonesia on the other. Uh, in which uh, uh, it's the uh, legal system is very much mingled uh, with other forms of law and some aspects of Western law for that matter. So, so comparative law really matters here, and especially in Islam. Why? Because of a very important principle that Amelia points out in the book, the unity of law concept in Islamic thought. Domestic and international law, all one system. You can't separate these two things. Uh, so in, um, sort of, in sort of political thinking in, in Western settings, a lot of times um, what is taken as kind of legal domestically is not the same thing that's taken as legal internationally. What is taken as moral domestically is sometimes not taken as the same thing that's, more, that's moral internationally. In fact, realists tell us we should make this split, that we shouldn't project the moral that we have domestically onto the international legal system, onto the international political system, is something fundamentally different. This unity of law concept, I think, is very powerful here. And that is, that is the idea that legal principles and values among people within a state are going to affect international conceptions behavior. You can't hive off the international and somehow leave your legal principles behind. So, the findings of the book are very interesting then, uh, and they do say something about important aspects of divergence. The empirical work, again, is highly contextualized. There are some very interesting trends going on in the book, a notable rise in references to Sharia law in international law states' constitutions. I mean, just to watch that trend in the evidence, it's just a descriptive trend uh, that Amelia has pointed out. It's a very, very interesting one. Um, there are commonalities which have already been covered between Islamic law and Western law, but the differences, I think, are important as well. So the point, I think, actually is about diversity within Islamic law. I find that to be the central insight that, for me, was kind of interesting and very, very grabbing. What are the outcomes that this uh, work focuses on? Modes of dispute settlement. That's what Amelia is trying to explain. Uh, that's uh, as an example of engagement with international law. Adjudication and arbitration on the one hand, and these are very formal forms of dispute settlement, especially adjudication. That's set up with a court. The court has rules. 
um, certain uh, methods apply to decision making in a court. You can't pick who the, uh, who's going to be on the court. You can't choose the judges. They're sitting judges. And adjudication is also another rather formal kind of way to make up, to make uh, international decisions. And that's to be contrasted uh, with other kinds of more flexible dispute settlement negotiation, mediation, and conciliation. So those are, you know, to, to, to kind of put these on sort of two kind of two kind of forms of comparison. We have the formal and legalistic on the one hand, and we have the more flexible and informal on the other hand. Uh, and, uh, and so that's one thing she said, is the mode of dispute settlement. And the second thing is the degree of legal commitment to formal dispute settlement systems in Western legal institutions. And there's very two, two very good indicators of this. One is whether a state has uh, made a declaration that it will be committed to the International Court of Justice to compulsorily have its dispute settled in that venue. Uh, and you can do this in a general statement or you can do it in international treaties, and she tests both of these ways of doing so. And the findings are very interesting. Not as many differences uh, between international law states and the rest of the world as you might think. The differences, though, within international law states follow a very distinctive pattern. The stronger the balance on indicators of Islamic law, the more likely international law states are to choose informal modes of settlement. Okay? So there is going to be residual resistance, if you want to think of it that way. Um, not everything uh, is easily accommodatable, in some sense, uh, across these two systems. And that's where you get the variance within in, in the findings that she has here. Uh, they resist commitments to formalism in their treaties and these optional clause declarations. Now, you know, there's nothing, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. A lot of countries don't like to use international courts. Uh, to my knowledge, I've never seen any proof that international courts actually generate more peaceful outcomes. I'm not sure I've seen that. So this is not a critique. It is an observation. There are some different. There are some differences. Okay, so um, let me just say, uh, I, uh, whenever I'm done, uh, you know, writing a book or giving a paper, I my commentator always says like, well, this raises more questions than it settles, and you know, you know, you never want to hear that, and that's not what this book does. It answers more questions than I could have imagined, frankly, and I find that to be what makes it so satisfying. But nonetheless, it does provoke. Uh, remaining questions. I'm just going to throw a few out there to see if maybe there are some things here we ought to be talking about as well. First of all, there's this term in the book that's used again and again, and I'd like to unpack what it is. It's milieu. Milieu keeps popping up here. Uh, and milieu, what is it? What is the, it's the Islamic state milieu or the Islamic milieu? To me, she's referring to culture and values when she uses that word. The, the broader environment of culture. Okay, so it leads to uh, a different, and so I'm convinced that, uh, that the milieu is contributing something that perhaps the law is not here. Okay, so, so in general, she argues the Islamic milieu espouses a distinct way of dispute resolution. A non-confrontational one that stands in sharp contrast with the overwhelmingly litigious culture of the West. It's a social cultural environment. It's a cultural influence um, that appreciates informal dispute resolution, brotherly consideration. Uh, and my question is this. Is culture of informal dispute settlement related to Sharia, or is it a broader cultural preference? After all, it seems to me 
that the interesting outlier here is Western litigiousness, not necessarily the desire to informally settle disputes. So I'm wondering how much is it of it is law and how much of the explanation has a little bit more to do with a culture that embraces informality. Okay, so that's kind of one thing that I was wondering uh, about uh, this. And it's, it's a very sort of interesting penultimate chapter in the book uh, in which strong regional differences show up among Islamic law states. And it's interesting that the Middle Eastern states, the Arab states, seem to account the most for the choice towards informality, which raises the issue to me that there might be something cultural uh, that is not necessarily reflected in the forms of law that are the focus of the piece. Uh, but these work together in some ways. So the second thing I want to ask is, what are the real policy implications? Um, so is it, is it really, uh, you know, is it really, uh, is the policy implication here that Islam can be integrated into the International Court of Justice's law and practice? This book stresses the importance of, to quote, incorporating non-Western, in this case, I'm quoting the same thing you quoted. Yes. Yeah, it jumped out at me, too, okay. but I have a different take on it. Okay, good. And, and that is that, uh, that, that uh, in this case, Islamic modes of legal thinking into international venues. I think we should speculate just a little bit more and possibly critically on what the consequences of doing that would be. So for one thing, what would be the response of the West? Okay, maybe not the response that we're hoping. I'm just thinking about the trend in US courts to pass legislation that says we will not allow Sharia law to be considered in domestic courts, for example, in the state of Oklahoma. Okay, so, there, so I'm just wondering about what the consequence of an opening to Sharia would be in these institutions, okay? Uh, that's just a, a question of politics, quite frankly. But the other thing is why? Why should international, uh, why should Islamic law states use courts? What's the evidence that using the ICJ is better outcome than mediation? I mean, follow your preferences, you know? Do what feels comfortable culturally. They have, and besides, they do have alternatives as well, right? It was very interesting that the book noted that there are no regional Islamic courts. Why are there none? Why is it not, not gotten off the ground? So if, if, if they would like some more formalized uh, way to settle disputes, there are, there are ways to begin to develop that too. I am not calling for rejection of Islam in the International Court of Justice. I'm calling for us to problematize just a little bit whether that would create lots of positive consequences and whether there are possibly alternatives. The next thing I wanted to ask quickly is, can this approach be applied to understanding other religions? So this book is, is massive in its implications. There's no way I would have expected this question to be uh, raised, much less answered in this book. But international behavior includes legal behavior. It results from a combination of cultural preferences and uncertainty born of unfamiliarity. And is there any reason to think that's limited to Islam? The insights of the book travel is my guess. There might be ways to be thinking about that. Would the stance towards international law be explained by different religious versus secular balances in Catholic countries, for example? Is there a way to think about this method transferring to give us even broader sorts of understandings? And then uh, I'll just two more and then I'm done. For, and then the next one is what if the focus had, had been some other area of international law rather than the ICJ's jurisdiction? What if the choice was to write about 
Islamic law and international law, uh, human rights and Islamic law, international human rights and Islamic law. What would the conclusions have looked like in that instance? I'm just wondering why the, how the choice, the scope choice, is somehow influencing too, and it, and it ought to, right? You, you have subject scope on any topic you pick up. But I just wonder, um, you're thinking perhaps uh, about these patterns that you've noticed based on um, the, kind of the scope conditions chosen. Uh, and then finally, it's never really quite about peaceful resolution of disputes. It's not really quite about that. It's actually about, because peaceful outcomes are never tested, the focus is on processes and institutional choices, not on outcomes. And I just wonder, what can we learn for the outcome of peace as well, based on, based on this study? So it's really about the engagement with the institution and not about peaceful resolution of disputes. Uh, it's peaceful, of course, to negotiate. It's peaceful to mediate. It, maybe it's peaceful to use a court. Um, so it strikes me that these are questions that her book is equipped to answer. It wasn't the purpose of the book to answer those questions I rose, but they were things that were going through my mind because that's the mark of actually a very good piece of scholarship. It sparks more. It sparks more interest, and, and uh, I, I found it to be a terrific read. It's covered with, it's been dragged all over the place. It's covered with coffee stains. You can see I went from front to back, top to bottom in this book. Uh, very much enjoyed reading it. It's a great book that fills a need. It fills a need, and I'm going to make very good use of it in my international law courses in the future. So I appreciate it very much. Thank you, Beth. We've had two marvelous scintillating discussants. This kind of, of response to a book is very affirming for the author because it indicates how provocative and interesting the book is. It's also no doubt a little frustrating because no doubt Amelia's thinking, I wish I'd heard some of this before it went to bed. I invite your comments and questions, and then we'll give Amelia and our discussants an opportunity to make closing remarks. You're invited to put your questions, but no, not only questions. If you want to make a comment, if you wish to express a disagreement with anything that's been said or offer a different take, you're welcome. Uh, if you're correcting our views that uh, uh, Islamic appeals to international courts are telling us that Muslims must take more seriously these courts, uh, can this in some way help us understand the United States, uh, which would seem to uh, certainly be amenable to uh, uh, adjudication of issues with uh, uh, courts that make poor system in more sense in the Western world. The second question is, uh, and again, I don't know, but it's my impression from what you said, um, are the cases that are taken uh, to international courts, uh, more about disputes between uh, Islamic states or also non-Islamic states? Great, thank you. I'm going to take a handful of questions, comments, and then hand over to the to media. Um, so African states have been quite interested in using the International Court of Justice for territorial disputes. So I was wondering, does that form kind of an interesting contrast? Because you know, that's become a very common venue if you look at a lot of the African territorial disputes. They've been solved, and so, you know, in this sort of cultural vein, is there something about sort of African states and their 
indigenous traditions that sort of leads them to go to the ICJ, which uh, wouldn't lead the Islamic state to the ICJ, and similar, with similar sorts of territorial boundary disputes. Thank you very much. That's a wonderful and provocative book. I want to go back to uh, Mahan's uh, position uh, and you know something that is very important. You know, there's an Islamic legal principle called al-'Adha which means whatever exists in the culture, and Islam is a culture, and it is not uh, opposing any key principle in Islamic law. It can be adopted as part of the law. So that gives Islamic law that kind of natural ability to be different in various contexts. Um, so that's the, the first point. I think that the, the, the diversity is in fact also a factor part of the division. The second point I want to make is that historically there's always been this problem of the lack of independence of Islamic judicial. So one of the key, I work in the area of Fiqh al-Jihad al-Fiqh which means, you know, Islamic ethics of the one piece. Much of it was formulated in the aftermath of the passing of Muhammad in the, you know, wars of conquest during the Umayyad and the Abbasid. And many of these jurors, in fact, produced the Islamic law of war to suit the, you know, imperial conquest. So, um, bringing that to the contemporary time, Many of these um, Muslim majority states are very dictatorial and authoritarian. And Islamic traditions, Muslim Judaism, of course, have very little independence. In fact, if you become the, the Sheikh al Azad in Egypt, you are appointed by the government, all of the prophets. So, if you know, did you look at maybe some of the you know, Islamic authorities and scholars who are not tied to a particular state but are practicing? their positions and their law in a kind of an informal way uh, in many of these authoritarian Thank you for all those comments and questions. Um, I, I'm hoping I'm going to be able to uh, remember all of them. So I'm going to start uh, with my last comment since it was just said. Um, in the book I talk a lot about the place of customary norms, so Adl or Urf, in the Islamic legal tradition, how from the beginning, when there was no clear ruling or uh, decision or text on a particular situation, Islamic legal tradition very much encouraged the usage of customary norms and in some places considered them to be part of Sharia. And I think that's uh, very much accounted, accounting for the, uh, my choice of the term Islamic legal tradition where it's not just Islamic law, it's the tradition of law as lived differently in different places of the world and in, in different times of the world. I really like your remark about judicial independence. Um, there was a hallmark of traditional um, uh, Islamic jurisprudence. However, nowadays, as you notice, the ideals of Islamic legal tradition are oftentimes compromised by um, the realities of politics. And uh, I do believe that Islamic international law is in the stage of crisis of authority, where we really don't know what is Islamic international law because, frankly, people are not writing about it. So I, I hope 
that we're going to have more scholars of Islamic legal traditions that are going to focus on Islamic international law, that we don't have to dig a couple of hundred years ago to figure out what are the rules for today via analogy. So thank you for this. Um, Maybe now uh, Gary's comment about African states. So that was one of the chapters that was exploratory, where I said Islamic legal tradition may be lived differently in different regions for the world of the world. And indeed, um, and that's something that Beth also mentioned, that the Middle Eastern states have, to me, um, those states are the most explicit containers for a lot of Islamic legal tradition, and thus their preferences is, are most along the lines of what I would expect. African states, on the other hand, do like adjudication. But I think, as you said, especially in the context of territorial disputes, that's been the tradition, even though several times the International Court of Justice aggravated African states by saying, uh, well, dismissing uh, in some of their cases. But I think that over time in Africa, I see preference for adjudication. I think it's, again, um, a different way in which the Islamic legal tradition is lived in African states. But that's a very important issue, especially in the context of territorial disputes that are just crucial in Africa. Um, Jim's comment, thank you, Jim, um, about the relationship between US or maybe more broadly powerful states and international courts. So the literature is somewhat clear on the relationship between state power and the preference or non-preference of international courts. Powerful states more often than not dislike international courts. They prefer to engage in dispute resolution um, that's less formal. They prefer to negotiate simply because they can be more uh, powerful. It is the weaker states that espouse international adjudication because according to international law, every state is equal according to law, no matter its size. And that plays out well in international courts, not so much in negotiations. Um, so thank you, thank you very much for that. The disputes that I looked at are between Islamic law states, but also non-Islamic states. So. One of the reviewers the, of the book recommended that I broaden the perspective and compare the behavior of Islamic law states to non-Islamic law states. And I think I learned a lot from it. And finally, to Stephanie's question about the, uh, Gambia's decision to refer the situation, uh, the Rohingya crisis, to the International Court of Justice. I am a very much a fan of International Court of Justice. I believe in this court. I think that it's a, well, it's the main judicial organ of the United Nations. And I think that it makes the case more um, seem, well, it is incredibly important, but it gives it fair, hopefully, legal evaluation. And nowadays, the uh, who is the, the judges of the International Court of Justice actually better reflect the m main forms of uh, civilization and legal systems. So I'm really hoping this is going to be one of those cases that's going to just make a splash. Cases like this usually uh, also increase the interest of Islamic law states in international courts. That was the case, uh, the advisory opinion on the building of the wall by Israel. That's the first time that we saw a lot of Islamic law states actually show up at the court. 
Normally they ignored it, but now they felt like, oh, we need to write a letter to ICJ saying, look, this is what's happening. So to me, uh, that's good. That's good. Yes, it was advisory. Yes, yes. So uh, I, I believe I answered all of the questions. Thank you very much for, for those. Mahan, do you want to respond, add anything? Um, no, we can go for another round. <laughs> OK, Beth, at the stage. I did want to jump in, but I, but I forgot what I was going to ask. Now. So I think we should go ahead. Maybe it'll pop back. OK. Yeah. Good. Uh, any other observations or questions? Please. Jason? So after Jason, we'll have final remarks from everyone on the panel. Jason. Thank you. So I'll ask a short point from Mark So I feel like uh, I appreciate the book in that it sort of paints a, a, a picture of where we might be going. I just wondered if we thought maybe along the best question, maybe inverse is if we don't read your book and we don't take your lessons, do things get worse? Do they stay the same? What does the world look like if we don't keep these lessons? It's clear I think the book offers a lot of hope where we can go. What does it look like if we just don't do anything? This is a good question. I think to answer this question, we just need to turn on the news. <laughs> Seriously. Um, and, and I think one of the reasons I wrote the book is that people understood that we understand as humans that the Islamic legal tradition is not what it's portrayed um, on the news. And, and really how it's international law understood and how it's made is by people. Policymakers are people. And if we don't um, try to focus on similarities, then we're going to do the opposite and focus on the differences. And that leads to a more conflict, not more peace. So it's, it's a great as far as the question, what can international law learn from the Islamic legal tradition? I think that it actually has learned a lot. Um, there are a lot of elements in international law that have been taken from the Islamic legal tradition, like freedom of the seas, like the institution of asylum, um, asylum. I always mispronounce it, but I spell it well. Um, however, in international law, we don't ever recognize that this is where they come from. It, one of my interviewers in, Alger in Algeria told me, look, it's cut and paste from Islam to international law, but we don't acknowledge where it's taken from. Yeah. So we have learned, we just don't talk about it. I had uh, I hired a student to analyze all English textbooks of, on international law that I could get my hands on for mentions of Islamic international law. It was uh, non-existent, non-existent. So it's just like, no. So this is what we can learn, acknowledge that something like the Islamic legal tradition exists. Thank you. Thank you. Mahan, final remarks? Oh, sure. So uh, thank you again. This is great forum, wonderful questions, and a uh, real joy and privilege to be celebrating this book. On the, just starting with Adam Hakama, with that Rashid you know, pointed out, or you know, appealed to our custom. The book had some um, counterintuitive, a number of counterintuitive uh, conclusions. One of them was, 
that Islamic law states that incorporate or value custom more within their constitutions also tend to go more to the International Court of Justice. Mm -hmm. And uh, that may be counterintuitive, but what's interesting, I think there, the way I read that was that um, that's the international custom. That's how disputes are recognized and resolved, and so they're following international custom. So there's counterintuitive ways in which this happens, or highly uh, societies that are states that are rely on Sharia a lot, like on the higher level of Islamicness, and they have Supreme Courts. They also go to the Islamic Court mm -hmm. of Justice. And perhaps there it's a shared value of adjudication um, that's already prized within their own uh, legal system. So the interaction with the domestic international becomes paramount. And so, like um, the professor said, you know, there's layers. It's complex, it's messy, and I think the, the book talks about the legal uh, uh, landscape as a kind of soil, with is Islamic law as one of the layers one in, in the sediment. And so, um, uh, there's a lot to read and think about here. Um, the point that, you know, I guess I picked on in my, um, in my own remarks and that I emphasize here and again, is the idea that not to treat legal systems as fixed, ossified, monolithic. They have histories and those histories are in process. They're not in, at an end. And the way for us to move forward peacefully is to welcome an interaction between legal systems and allow them to co-evolve rather than treating them as isolated uh, institutions, uh, systems that either agree on a point or disagree and that's that. There's a lot of room to negotiate, to accommodate across the legal systems. And one of the ways that that may happen is just through education. So, I mean, the book educates us but when speaking of the judges that are appointed in the international court, uh, how um, one of the judges that you mentioned, uh, I don't remember who it was, who has a private interest in mm -hmm. Islamic law. Mm -hmm. And so he brings it in sort of <laughs> casually uh, just because of his own knowledge base. And that's a kind of informal way in which we might be able to see uh, a lot more crossover. Um, so uh, maybe education has something to do with this. It's something we can think about. Um, just the point on, you know, what do you do with a legal system that says this comes from God mm -hmm. versus this is something we've, you know, produced rationally. So bracketing the issue of God for a moment, the formalism of the regal arguments and their rational justifications are comprehensible. And so in the court... I don't think anyone from the legal tradition will argue, well, this is what God says, take it or leave it. Otherwise, here's a sword. It's not, that doesn't work that way. What it, what it is is the, the, the arguments are ra rational. They're rationally justified. They're, they're framed through um, terms uh, that relate to um, uh, what we understand to be uh, furthering the good, public interest, general welfare, uh, amicable, you know, uh, gen general concepts of fairness that would be recognizable to all, all the parties. And so when that happens, we can certainly envision more of a crossover. Whether in time so, there will be a kind of evolution where you know, we'll forget that this comes from Islam and we'll have to historically look at it, um, 
uh, with something for the future historians to write about. Mm -hmm. But today, I think um, the kind of proposal that you make um, for there to be cultural accommodation, I really think it's bold, and I applaud it. So, Thank you. Yeah. Super. All right. Well, um, yes. No. That, that's a, that's a wonderful note. I think to end on. But you know, I don't mean to be a skeptic. But let me throw one more little thing out, um, and that is that this idea. You know. So so. The, inter the um, International Court of Justice is sort of one thing, right? You have states meeting as co-equals, um, but, but what if we took, what if we were to look at the International Criminal Court? And this raises the issue of the authority of judges, right? Does a Western court have the authority to judge the actions of a Muslim person in, in the criminal law? You know, I guess I was thinking about that. How, how far can this kind of reach really go? And I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm feeling um, that there are kind of multiple points of tension and resistance uh, that kind of flow from this idea of a unified system uh, in which sort of God, it's God-centered and Sharia-centered, which is not very comfortable with this idea of a Western judge, of a... Um, of a you know a person who's been accused of a crime who's um, Muslim. So so um, sorry, thinking about how far that goes, I think is um, is another really kind of an interesting point too. Um, and and I guess having said uh, having having read what you said about the unity of the legal system, I would wonder if that's not at play just a little bit in state to state conflicts as well. Who is who is the what is the authority of this non-Islamic judge to even even judge us as an Islamic state? Is that do you, do you see that at all in the um, do you see that in the uh, evidence that you look to? Because you you phrase it the hesitancy is phrased in terms of uncertainty and preference for informality. But I wonder if there's a larger legitimacy question behind it too. Who are you to judge? an Islamic law state or an Islamic state. You see what I'm saying? Is yes. there's a deep legitimacy question here, it seems to me. It's not, and maybe it's not insurmountable, uh, but in systems that are very heavily committed to Sharia, as you demonstrate, mm -hmm. is that part of the argument too that kind of brings about the result that you find? I think so. Um, I think it brings the larger question, why don't we have international Islamic court? Um, so they can, those states can use. Well, in 1987, um, the OIC created a statute for International Islamic Court of Justice, but the court has never come into operation because the states could not agree what Islamic law is. So they got frustrated with each other. And when I spoke with policymakers from Islamic law states, they told me, look, we try to keep it in the Muslim milieu, but sometimes we just can't. So we go to another court. We don't like it. Um, there are elements that we don't appreciate, don't appreciate about, about it, but that's what it is. And we need to solve that dispute. I think when territorial dispute or any sort of dispute is just so costly that non-solving it is worse mm -hmm. than solving it in a Western court, yeah. then they're going to just go to what it is. Great. Thank you. Just from a policy perspective to address the question that Beth posed about the policy implications of the book, I think it, I would stress two answers. What are the policy implications? The first is that any work such as this, which is well thought out and properly researched, that challenges ignorance and arrogance and hubris and cultural homogenizing 
in international politics and dispute resolution is worthwhile. And second, in my own field, international mediation, there tends to be an obsession on the, side of the, on the part of the international community and the UN in particular with mediation as the primary, if not the exclusive form of consensual dispute resolution. So aside from chapter seven, coercive measures. There's not a more open-minded consideration of the range of cultural and religious approaches to dispute resolution depending on country and region. And interestingly, one often hears that perspective not from senior officials in the UN, at UN headquarters, but from mediators in the field who say too great a burden of peacemaking has been placed on the mediator. And they, the mediators, would much prefer an emphasis on the term peacemaking than mediation. Peacemaking being a broader term which, is, which encompasses mediation but also conciliation and adjudication and arbitration. And from that broader perspective, the strategic and political challenge in each case is what is the best form of dispute resolution in order to prevent violence in this particular case and to approach that with an open mind. With those closing remarks, thank you, Amelia, for the great book. Thank you to our discussants, and thank you to all of you. If you want to hear more of Beth, she's speaking in this venue at 4 o'clock. The title is Border Anxieties. Subtitle is? Mm -hmm. The title is Border Anxieties. <laughs> and our colleague Gary Goetz is the discussant. Usher Kaufman, director of Croc Institute, will be the moderator. So if you wish to come back at 4 o'clock, look forward to seeing you then.